Welcome to the Perspectivalist. Our agenda is to offer a perspective of the world that allows you to think more clearly as a Christian. We want the normativity of scriptures to be the starting point of everything we do. Thanks for joining the conversation. I'm Yuri Brito. This is our fourth in a series of overviews of James B. Jordan's Through New Eyes. These are for subscribers only. Thanks for the $1 a month gift, which will help offset some of the costs of website and editing. If you're not a member and not interested in subscribing, please uh, let me know and I will be happy to send this episode to you or any other subscriber-only episodes for free. Just uh, send us an email. In chapter 2 of Through New Eyes, Jordan argues that the Bible is fundamentally symbolic. Sun, moon, stars, heavens, lions, lambs, they're there to help us interpret the rest of the scriptures. They are elements of creation that help us interpret God's creation. They're not given randomly, they're given with a purpose. Now, the entirety of TNE is about symbolism, is about its applications, as we're going to see. But chapter 3 is like a primer on symbolism and worldview. If you ask me what chapter would you send folks looking for a summary of the book, I would send them to chapter 3, because I think it's so fundamental in terms of establishing the thesis of of TNE. Now, it's very true that anyone who begins to talk about symbols is going to be seen or heard skeptically. If we say that the sun, moon, and stars serve not only as literal markers in the skies, but that the sun, moon, and stars also speak to governmental structures on earth, many people are going to hear what we're saying, and they're going to assume that we're not dealing with the reality of the text. Symbolism can be helpful, but it's only secondary to the heart of exegesis, they're going to say. But the problem, of course, is that when we come to prophetic books like Isaiah, we realize that the prophets use these symbols to speak precisely of the political powers of the ancient world. And he uses symbols like sun, moon, and stars to speak about how God is going to overthrow the created order of the body politic and bring judgment upon them. You can't understand the Olivet Discourse unless you grasp the symbolism given to us in the Old Testament. Because that's what the Gospel writers are relying upon. The reality is that the Bible offers a deeply symbolic world in the Old Testament, and the New Testament writers embedded in that Old Testament world can't escape its consequences. It's there. The New Testament writers are going to bring it into their own worlds. And this lack of symbolic worldview in many of the evangelical hermeneutical structures of the day is what makes modern interpretations so flawed in our day, leading to all sorts of bizarre eschatological viewpoints. We look at books of the Bible as if they can be digested without connection to the covenantal structures of the rest of the Bible. And here, we should be equal opportunity offenders because this skepticism of symbolism comes from both conservative and liberal perspectives. Liberals think the Bible is symbolic because it uses man-generated symbolism. They don't think that the symbolism of the Bible comes from God. They believe that it's authored by man without any divine guidance. On the other hand, conservatives don't see a reason for the symbolism except as an after-effect. It's arbitrary. When we who embrace the symbolic worldview that James Jordan is arguing, when we make statements like, the Holy Spirit does not waste its breath, this is going to be viewed as silly 
Well, they're going to say, you know, not every detail means something. But if not every detail means something, then what are the details for? And what we are arguing for is that the details are there for something. They are there in the text to beautify, to adorn, to glorify, to transfigure, to add weight to, to elaborate, to tie us back, to connect us forward. Yes, the Holy Spirit does not waste his breath. The text gives us details for a reason. The text mentions rocks and hills for a reason, not merely as an add-on or to fill space. This is why, instead of abstract philosophizing, the Bible is written in stories and histories and poems and symbols. Yes, there are, of course, straightforward language as in Paul's letters, but there are also straightforward poetry and symbols from which Paul draws. And this leads us to the purpose of symbols in chapter 3. Why are symbols in the text? Well, the answer is simple. It's because they point us to the triune God. The symbols of creation point us to God, and we, human beings, Man himself is a symbol that points us to God. When you look at man, when you look at woman, you should say, that person points us to God. That individual is an image bearer, a symbolic being created to reflect God himself in his actions. And this takes us back to the actions of man in the garden, for example. They're given because they mimic God's actions. Man is a symbol maker. Man determines, man works, man creates, man evaluates, man communes. Well, these are all images that take us back to God. And what this means is that man as a symbol and creation as symbols point us to God as three persons and to God as one who works on behalf of his creation. Now, what JBJ does in chapter 3 is he lays out the primary symbols in the Bible, which we have already hinted at, but they are very crucial to see and remember as we read the biblical text and also the rest of TNE here. And here are the primary symbols in the Bible. The primary symbol of God is man, as we've just said. Man is the greater reflector of God. Redeemed man, especially, is a representative of God, a vice-regent. And then there are four classes of secondary symbols. They are animals, plants, stones, non-living things, and stars, heavenly bodies. And these biblical symbols, they shape our presuppositions. Why? Because symbolism creates reality rather than reality creating symbols. Man, as the primary symbol, creates symbols, whether good or bad. And it's important that we stop here and make a distinction, which falls into the old Vantillian creator-creature distinction here. And here's the difference between God and man. God's actions are creatively constructive. That means when God speaks, it comes to pass. God doesn't need to copy symbols from anyone else. And by the way, this also plays into the old claim that the Bible copied or borrowed accounts from other ancient world narratives. No, no. God's word is the precondition for all other accounts. The book of Genesis is not just an apologetic against the pagan worlds. The book of Genesis creates its own reality because they come from the mouth of God, who creates all reality. Now, Genesis confronts the pagan narratives, but it is not written to combat pagan narratives. It has its own telos. 
So God's actions are creatively constructive. God is God. God is not in any way like fallen man. Man is different. According to James B. Jordan, man is receptively reconstructive. God's actions are creatively constructive. Man's actions are receptively reconstructive. Now, don't be alarmed by all this fancy language here. What it simply means is that man needs to learn from God before generating his own symbols. God is the fountain of symbols. Man seeks God's words to create symbols, God's language to create symbols. God is the fountain of symbols. So if God is the primary reality from which all symbols are derived, and if God is the source of all symbols, including man, what are the symbols that God uses to reveal himself most clearly? This is, incidentally, the beginning of an ecclesiastical theology that James Jordan develops in his other great work called The Sociology of the Church, that had enormous impact in my own thinking about the church and has shaped my own works, which are far from the gravitas of James Jordan, but it certainly has shaped the book I edited called The Church-Friendly Family. It shaped my little book, The Trinitarian Father, the two commentaries I co-wrote with Rich Lusk. James Jordan's ecclesiology is fundamental to the way he understands typology and symbolism. So what are the special symbols that God uses to reveal himself to his people. This is where you should go to find God in this world. What are the places you go, the things you go to to find God in this world? They are, first, man, as we already mentioned. Man has dominion over animals, dominion over everything else. Secondly, the word. And third, the sacraments. Now, notice that there are no icons involved. The reference to man is to the human man, not a picture of a man. And this, of course, we can talk about it later, has implications for how we view iconography, how we view Eastern Orthodoxy. But note also that these three symbols are the three things that Satan tried to pervert in the garden. He perverted the word in his conversation with Eve. He perverted the sacramental symbols of the two trees. He perverted the revelation of God in man by leading man into the fall in Genesis 3. Since Satan perverted all these three primary symbols, what is needed to restore these special symbols? Well, the answer is grace. The word was compromised in the garden, but God is going to restore its symbolic purity by putting his imprimatur on it. Grace restores the sacraments, which are these two nonverbal witnesses of baptism, the Lord's Supper. Grace is going to restore and redeem man. When we are justified, man is restored to wholeness, as uh, Jim concludes, Quote, the restoration of the whole fabric of life takes place when these symbols are restored to power. Close quote. That's very clear. God needs to restore these symbols to power. He needs to restore and redeem man. And when icons are used as substitutes for human beings, these symbols lose their power. When the words of a priest make the sacraments real, then it loses its power. When the Bible is not trusted as the true self-authenticating word of God, it loses its power. But grace puts all these special symbols in their proper place. Our symbols create, but they reinforce our worldviews. Jordan argues that we re-energize our worldviews by familiarizing ourselves with the symbolism of the Bible. And as we familiarize ourselves with the symbolism of the Bible... This becomes more than a mere academic exercise. 
But that means that we begin to see the biblical patterns all throughout the scriptures. We begin to see something in Exodus that appears again in Jonah or Ruth. We begin to see something in Ruth that appears again in the Gospels. We begin to see these patterns, and they function more than a mere academic exercise. These patterns are also going to help us interpret and see the patterns of history and culture. It is going to strengthen us to be good evaluators of the world we live in, so that we can begin to reshape our little worlds in order that we might please our God. This is especially important because it is pertinent when it comes to our reformational confessions. If man is created to generate symbols, can we ever outgrow them? Well, if we believe in the ultimacy of God, then the answer is yes. If we believe that man is the final symbol generator, then the answer is no. So what are some examples of man-generated symbols? Well, in our reformed world, we have the Westminster Confession, the Heidelberg, the Belgic, and other confessions and catechisms. Now, if we believe that man is ultimate, then we're going to argue that these documents have a perpetual dimension and that we shouldn't try to change them in any way. But Jordan argues that if we view them that way, we're committing idolatry if we take these confessions to a, a place of grandeur that cannot be altered. We should admire them, we should use them, we should form our theological identity through them, but they're not meant to endure forever. Why? Because of its context, because of its language, because of its people. It should be studied, it should be loved. But man is called to produce a new confession, embracing the greatness of the older documents. Because you see, the Bible remains unaltered. The word above all earthly powers remain unaltered. But the confessions need to be conformed more and more to the unchanging revelation of God. The three special symbols are man, word, and sacraments. When we restore the proper dignity of man, the role of the sacraments in shaping the life of the church, and the blueprint of God himself, the word of God, and when we bring that again to its place, in shaping the ethos and the ethic of not only the church but civilization. We begin to see symbolism as it should, as that which points us to God and by the power of the Spirit, man will become a symbol-generating creature, pointing all of the world to the Father, the Son, and Holy Spirit. Thanks for tuning in. Hope you'll stay with us for our fourth episode, forthcoming. May the Lord be with you.